As ever, I encourage you to turn to Romans 4 as we look at this together. Abraham, an example of salvation, part 2. What is a Christian? I wonder if you were asked this by somebody who wasn't a Christian, or uh, some of our young people will be doing this week, an RE exam, and asked the question, what is a Christian? I wonder what answer you would give. Well, let's look at one answer. One answer is, a Christian is a follower of Jesus who reads the Bible and prays, who seeks to please God in how they live, and because of their faithfulness to God, will be in heaven one day. Now, that is probably a very common viewpoint of what a Christian is. And while certainly there are elements of truth in that definition, that is certainly not what the Apostle Paul would say a Christian is. That's not where he has been coming from in the book of Romans. I think Paul would say something more like this. A Christian is a sinner who has realized how serious their sin is and they've come to be right with God through faith in what Jesus has done on the cross to deal with their sin. You see, in this definition, at the very heart of it, is the doctrine or the teaching of justification through faith, of being right with God through faith alone. For Paul, this teaching of being justified through faith alone is the very foundation of the Christian life, the very foundation of what a Christian is. Now, Paul has been wrestling against people, believing that they have an idea that they can do anything to get right with God, that they can indeed contribute to getting right with God, but they can become right with God with anything they do or anything that they would become. No, Paul argues you're right with God through faith alone. Now, even when we have been Christians for many years, we need to be clear that it is not our years of Christian service that we rely on to get right with God or to get us into heaven. Rather, we must still rely fully on one thing. We have faith in what Jesus has done on the cross. That alone has to be our hope. You think of the, the Apostle Paul. You think of when he died. And if God was to ask Paul, Paul, why should I let you into heaven? Do you think Paul would have said, well, Lord, I've been your apostle for many years. I've written so much of the New Testament. I've traveled all over the world teaching the gospel. I have suffered for you. I've been beaten. I've been stoned. I've been shipwrecked for you. I have devoted my whole life to you, Lord. Paul would not have said that. Paul would have had one answer when he was asked, why should God let him into heaven? He says, I'm trusting in what Jesus has done on the cross alone for my salvation. We must never be distracted from that. One hope, not our Christian lives, not anything that we become, one hope, Trusting in Jesus' death alone. Now, last week we began here in Romans 4, looking how Paul uses Abraham as an example of salvation to further emphasize the teaching back in Romans 3 of how we're justified through faith alone. 
And last week, as we looked at Abraham in part one, we saw this. First of all, no boasting from Abraham. Paul's argument is if Abraham was saved by works, he had something to boast about. But he wasn't saved by works, he was saved through faith. He quotes from Genesis 15, which says, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. So it wasn't by anything he did. It wasn't by following the Lord. It was through faith in the Lord. Secondly, we had clarity from David, quoting from Psalm 32, which says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And there we see that being right with God is an action on God's behalf. Yes, it's an action based on what Jesus would do on the cross, based on us coming to trust in Jesus. But we're right with God. It is an action of God to forgive. And thirdly, we're thinking last week about how Abraham was sealed by circumcision. Abraham was circumcised after, many years after, he was declared to be right with God. So his circumcision didn't produce salvation. He was saved before he was circumcised. His circumcision was a sign and seal of the cleansing that Abraham had when he came to trust in the Lord. When he came to trust in the Lord, the power of the cross was applied to him. And so, as we continue today in chapter 4, Paul continues to use Abraham as an example of salvation, an example of what it means to be justified through faith. And this is so important. Remember, when we looked at chapter 3, we had a quote from Leah Morris that says, that chapter about being justified through faith is probably the most important paragraph that's ever been written in the world. And Abraham wants to, or sorry, Paul wants to make sure we fully understand it. So today we're continuing and we're looking very much at the subject of faith today. And first of all, we see faith's supremacy in verses 13 to 17. And Paul has three arguments here in order to prove that faith is supreme over the law. One historical, one based on language, and one based on theology. Let's think about the historical argument, first of all. Look at verse 13, what he says. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Now, what Paul is saying here, if people are made right with God through the law, What hope would there be for Abraham? Because the law came into existence 430 years after the time of Abraham. So if people argue that it is through the law you become right with God, as some of the Jews did, they're saying it's not faith, it's not faith that saves. Then they're saying that Abraham is lost because Abraham didn't have the law. The law hadn't come through Moses yet. But as we have seen, in Genesis, in God's word, it says Abraham was justified through faith in God's promises. And so Paul is saying, look from history. The law wasn't there. It hadn't come onto Mount Sinai yet. Abraham, though, was right with God through faith, not by the law. And then secondly, we have the the language argument, verses 15 to 16. Look at verse 15, it says, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. 
Now, the law sets a standard, a standard which is perfection, which none of us can keep. Romans 3 and 23, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, fall short of God's perfect standard. Now, before the law came into existence, people were still sinners. But by the law, people become transgressors. And the word a transgressor means someone who deliberately breaks the law of God. Now, people were still sinful. People were still disobeying God. But when the law came through Moses, people deliberately trespassed, even though they knew the law, into areas that they should not go to. So the law, indeed, made people aware more of their sin. But by contrast, look what he says here in verse 16. He says, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Now, there are three key words in verse 15, three key words in verse 16. Let's see these words side by side because it just contrasts the two different teachings that Paul is resting with here. The law leads to transgression, which leads to wrath. Nothing very good, nothing very encouraging about that. Whereas the promise of God, as he gave to Abraham, the promise of salvation leads to faith, which leads to grace, the gift of salvation. Now, which line would you like to choose? One line, the line of the law, it speaks about death. It speaks about eternal death. It speaks about destruction. It speaks of how we can't measure up. The second line with God's promise speaks about life, eternal life, God's gift of grace, God's wonderful gift of salvation. And you know, Paul is wording this very carefully. He says, which would you like to choose? The law, transgression, and wrath? Because if you go down the way of the law, if you go down the way of good deeds, that's where you end up, God's wrath. Or choose God's promise of salvation in Christ. Faith in Christ. God's wonderful grace. And then thirdly, he has a theological argument in verse 16 to 17. Do you remember back in verse 14, I wonder if you picked it up in the reading, or actually verse 13, sorry, what it said, Abraham would be the heir of. It says a very unusual phrase, that Abraham would be the heir of the world. Now we see here in verse 16 how this would happen, that Abraham would be the heir of the world. He says in verse 16, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest in grace and be guaranteed to all his, that's Abraham's, offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, the Jew, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations. Here we see something wonderful. Abraham became the heir of the world. He becomes the father of many nations. His name was originally not Abraham, but Abram, which means revered father. His name became Abraham, which meant father of many nations, because 
he would have multitudes and multitudes of people from every nation who would come to share in the faith that he had in the Lord and they would become his children. And the wonderful thing today, if you've come to trust in Jesus Christ, you share in the faith of Abraham, you are a child of Abraham. You're a child of God's wonderful covenant promises. Now, Paul's argument here is salvation is through the law. How could these people from nations which never had the law and never observed the law, how could they be part of Abraham's righteous family? How could they be part of this if it's by the law? But he says it's not by the law, it's by faith. The argument here is Abraham becomes the father of many nations as people come to the shared faith in the Lord. As Paul says here, it is through our shared faith of Abraham that we become children of Abraham, we can become right with God, we become part of the family of God, part of the family of Abraham. We are part of the new Israel when we come to this faith in the Lord. Do you see these three arguments? You see, you may think, oh, Paul, you're laboring this, but he wants people to be absolutely clear. Yes, the law had its place, but the f- salvation is by faith. Faith is supreme. Faith is the thing we need to hold on to. Look back in verse 16. There's a wee phrase there I want to pick on just before I leave this point. He says, The promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. I've shared this before, but one time Cherif and I were at a wedding and we were beside a, a couple of the Roman Catholic faith. And the lady said to me at one stage, we got talking about church and, and about uh, Christianity, and she said to me at one stage, you Protestants have it so easy. Now I said, what do you mean we have it so easy? And then she said, because you can be sure you're going to heaven. We Catholics can never be sure. And in many ways, she was spot on. Because if your salvation, which sadly within Catholicism is, if your salvation is by religious duty, religious works, you never know if you've done enough. Whereas here, Paul says the salvation through faith is something guaranteed to you. It's just something you can be absolutely certain of. That when you grasp hold of Jesus through faith, embrace him as your Savior Lord. When you grab hold of him, you are guaranteed eternal life. You're guaranteed it because it doesn't depend on what you do. It depends on Jesus and what he has done on the cross. Now, do you see how a salvation through faith is so much superior than any idea of salvation by the law? So here we have faith's supremacy. And then secondly, we have faith's character in verse 17 to 21. Verse 17, Paul says here, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Life to the dead... And calls into existence the things that do not exist. Here we have two things which are a vital part of faith in the Lord. Believing in the God who raises from the dead, as he does in his son Jesus, and believing 
in the God who calls into existence everything from nothing as he did in the creation of the world. So faith has to include these two things. Now, for Abraham, these phrases of giving life to the dead and bringing into existence from nothing actually had a more personal meaning. Look what he says in verse 18. In hope, speaking about Abraham, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, you shall, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So Abraham, as he considered his own body, a hundred-year-old man, the idea of him being able to father a child, he felt he was as good as dead. In regards to Sarah, his wife, she was long past the menopause. There was nothing there to produce a baby. And so he was as good as dead. She was, there was nothing there. But Abraham had faith despite that, that God could do this. His faith rose above the situation that he saw around him in regards to himself and Sarah's bodies. And the key to his faith was that he didn't focus on what he saw around him, but rather his faith depended on and focused on God and God's promises to him. Look what it says there in verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now, we can think of a time, yes, when Abraham wavered a wee bit, maybe not so much in faith, but he tried to do things his own way when he took his wife's servant, Hagar, to have a child with her. Now, Abraham was at the age of 85 when that happened. But he learned his lesson. And for the 15 years that followed that, from 85 until his 100 when Isaac would be born, his faith was unwavering. Now notice what it says there at the end of verse 20. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. If you want your faith to be stronger, if you want to grow in your faith, here is the answer. As Abraham worshipped the Lord, as he served the Lord, as he lived his life focused on the Lord, his faith grew and grew. The character of his faith, the nature of his faith, depended on what he focused on. Abraham was a weak man. He was a vulnerable man. But his faith was focused on the God who was almighty. His faith was focused on the God whose promises are certain. And because of that, because he was focused on God, not on himself, not on weak Abraham, not on weak Sarah, because he is focused on almighty and glorious God, his faith grew and grew until it says in verse 21, he was fully convinced of God's promises. It seems he was sure to sure, but as he lived with the Lord, as he grew with the Lord, as he worshipped the Lord, as he lived for the glory of God, 
he became certain of the promises of God. How's your faith? Have you this certainty that Abraham had in God's promises? Or, or maybe today you're, you're not a Christian and you'd love to have faith. You'd love to be able to have that peace and that certainty that you know Christians have, that you know. How do we come to that point of faith? How do we grow in a faith when we have weak faith? Well, the answer is we focus on the Lord. We focus on who God is. We focus on what God has said and what God has done in his word. And one of the, the best places to focus is what we're doing here today in the Lord's Supper. Because there we have in visible form the promise of the gospel. As you take the bread, as it is given to you, this bread which is broken before you, as you take it, it's reminding you that when you take Jesus, when you take the broken Jesus, trusting in him through faith, you're saved from your sin. As you take the wine which represents the shed blood of Jesus on Calvary, it reminds you you're cleansed from your sin. Cleansed from your sin, not through faith in the sacrament. No, no, it's just a sign. You're cleansed from your sin by trusting in the broken body and the shed blood. You know, isn't God so wonderful that in baptism and in the Lord's Supper, he has given us visible signs alongside his word to encourage us. That's the purpose of the sacrament, to encourage us, to strengthen us in our faith. Faith's character. And then thirdly, we have faith's provision from verse 22 to the end of the chapter. Verse 22 says, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And you know, I think there's something special here. Verse 21 says that he was fully convinced of God's promises. He was certain of it. And there's something about such a faith that resonates within the heart of God. There's something about faith which God absolutely delights in and is thrilled with. You see, faith is taking God at his word. And God loves that. Because you are, by that faith, acknowledging that the person and character of God, that their God is trustworthy. When you trust the Lord, you're saying that God is of such a person, such a nature, such a reputation, you can trust him fully. And that sort of faith excites God. But unbelief, on the other hand, is something that God takes very personally. Because when we don't believe, we, we tend to think, oh, poor me, I just can't believe, as if 
unbelief is a sort of a neutral thing and sort of a poor condition. But unbelief is saying that the person and the character of God cannot be trusted. And so there's nothing neutral about unbelief. If you're a person with integrity, if you're a person, if you're a person and you value the, your character and your reputation, you will absolutely hate it when your word is questioned. Because your character has been questioned when people will not believe your word. And God, who is such a, a glorious and perfect nature and character, despises it when he is not taken at his word, when his word is not trusted. Because then his nature, his character, his whole personhood is slurred. That is why when it comes to the Bible, it's a very personal thing to God that we believe it, that we trust it, because it's the very word of God. Now let's see here what this faith, which the Lord delights in, let's see what this faith needs to be like. It said in verse 22, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespass and raised for our justification. Our faith has to be in the Lord Jesus, who was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The resurrection proves that Jesus' death as a sacrifice, as an atonement, as a propitiation for sin, was accepted as a complete payment for sin. And so we have to trust in that. We have to trust that Jesus died and Jesus rose from the grave, proving that he had paid the price in full. You see, righteousness, this right standing with God, can only come about through faith in the crucified and the resurrected Christ. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. If you were asked a question by God today, why should he let you into heaven? What would you say? I'm a good Presbyterian. I've been a good father. I've been a good mother. I've been a good husband, a good wife. I've been a, I've been a good neighbor. I've tried my best. The Apostle Paul called those such thinking as rubbish. You have to see all that you do as rubbish. All my little efforts to, to please a holy and pure God, they're rubbish. I have only one plea. I have only one claim. That Jesus has died on the cross for my sin. And I know it has been accepted. 
because he was risen on the third day. Is that your plea? Is that your hope? And if you're coming to the table today, you can only come to this table if that is your plea. You don't have to be perfect to come to this table. You have to understand you're far from perfect, but you have a Savior whose body was broken, whose blood was shed, so that you can be right with God. Let us pray. Oh, God, our Father, thank you for this truth today, this reminder about faith. And Father, we just thank you for Jesus. Oh, Lord, just forgive us forever we think that we can do anything to, to make us right with you. May we realize that when Jesus died on the cross, when Jesus cried, it is finished. Father, the work was complete. The door to heaven has been opened. Sinners are forgiven. And he has proved it by rising on the third day. Oh, Father, help us, no matter how long we've been in the Christian journey, never to lose sight. Our only hope is the cross. Our only hope is the shed blood. And for any who are not resting there, draw them even today. In Jesus' name, amen.